This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. I'm here with Sophia Gorgans, a third-year EM resident at Zucker Northwell in New York. Sophia is one of our amazing editors for the EM at 3 a.m. series, and today we're going to be looking at drowning. Sophia, it's great to have you on the podcast. Let's start with why drowning is a problem. How often are we seeing these patients? Drowning is one of the leading causes of accidental deaths across the world. In children less than 15 years old, it is the leading cause. Children aged 1 to 4 years are particularly vulnerable, but young adults are at risk for other reasons, including suicide and drug ingestion, while elderly adults may accidentally drown in their bathtubs. In the United States, according to the CDC, there are 11 deaths from drowning per day. That's over 4,000 per year, in addition to another 22 non-fatal drowning incidents per day. That's over 8,000 per year. Major issue here, 11 deaths from drowning every day is unbelievable, and then 22 non-fatal drowning incidents per day, very unfortunate. Now, there have been a couple definitions over the years for drowning. What's the most recent one? Broadly speaking, drowning results from respiratory impairment after submersion in a liquid, usually water. Aspiration of the liquid causes a loss of surfactant in your lungs. It also causes pulmonary edema and hypoxia, which in turn can lead to cardiac arrest. In a drowning event, the diving reflex, which is bradycardia, apnea, and peripheral constriction, is thought to be protective. However, few patients actually experience the diving reflex. Although there are case reports of neurointact survival after prolonged submersion, Irreversible neuronal cell damage can start as early as four to six minutes in hypoxemia. I remember having to learn about salt water and freshwater drowning. Is there any difference between the two in what happens? There used to be a distinction drawn between saltwater and freshwater drowning pathophysiology and treatment. The thought was that the hypotonic freshwater could result in electrolyte derangements. The studies, though, have been mixed, and the current consensus is to treat saltwater and freshwater drowning events equivocally. All right, so no real clinical difference between the two. How about dry drowning? Is this a true clinical entity? So dry drowning has been used to describe when a person is found dead in the water without evidence of water aspiration. It's unclear why these cases occur, although it's theorized that it might be due to laryngospasm or by death by a completely unrelated cause, like a cardiac arrest. Dry drowning is not an actual medical term, and it's problematic because it may result in misdiagnosis and mismanagement. Dry drowning is occasionally also used to mean secondary or delayed drowning, and these terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but these are also non-scientific and problematic terms for the same reason. The term secondary drowning came into being because of the delay in the development of pulmonary edema in some drowning patients. So pulmonary edema from drowning can take several hours to develop, which is why the four to six hour observation period that's recommended is so important. But it doesn't take days or weeks to develop, which is what secondary drowning usually refers to. There have been cases widely covered in the media especially, 
of children dying a week after a drowning incident that they then call secondary drowning, but the autopsies will later reveal that there's other causes for these incidents. Let's get to the brass tacks here. What should we do if we get a patient out of the water after drowning? After removing the patient from the water, rapid resuscitation is key to improved morbidity and mortality. If the patient's not breathing or doesn't have a pulse, immediately start CPR and rescue breaths. If you have a bag valve mask, you can use that to provide some positive pressure. Intubation might be necessary to secure the airway, but for patients who are still breathing, you can just administer oxygen through a non-rebreather, a face mask, or a nasal cannula. Fairly straightforward airway management. How about other traumatic injuries? I guess my big question is the C-spine. When do we need to use a C-collar for these patients? So this is another event where there's high media coverage around these trauma-related drownings. But actually, only 0.5 to 5% of drownings involve traumatic injury, most commonly, as you mentioned, cervical spine injuries from diving. Unless the mechanism of drowning is suspicious or known to be traumatic, C-spine precautions and trauma activation upon arrival in the ED are likely not necessary. Many of these patients will come in with a C-collar, but it sounds like the vast majority of them won't have a C-spine injury or another traumatic injury. What's next? Many patients rescued from drowning are hemodynamically stable and mentating well, but they should still be evaluated in the emergency department. When drowning patients arrive in the ED, they can generally be divided into two categories, the seemingly well and the critical or decompensating. Let's start with the well-appearing patients. Do they need labs, and what about imaging like a chest x-ray? For the seemingly well, labs and imaging, such as a chest x-ray, may be unnecessary. If their physical exam is completely normal, meaning no rails, no crackles on pulmonary exam, and reassuring vital signs, it's reasonable to opt for an observation period of four to six hours, after which they can be discharged if they're remaining asymptomatic. However, if during this time the patient develops any new symptoms, especially hypoxia or changes on pulmonary exam, basic blood work, coags, and chest x-ray are now warranted. Even if the patient does not have a high oxygen requirement and is stable on nasal cannula, a MICU evaluation may still be warranted as these patients need frequent cardiopulmonary and neuro checks. Discharge can still be considered if the patient is minimally symptomatic, has no oxygen requirements, and lab work and imaging are reassuring. That's fairly straightforward. The observation period lets you watch the patient, make sure there's nothing else going on, and if there is something that comes up, like new symptoms, some hypoxemia, then you can move forward with your testing like an x-ray. Otherwise, no symptoms, they look great, discharge. What about the critical patients? For your critical patients, approach as you would any acutely ill patient airway, breathing, and circulation. Remember, due to a loss of surfactant and pulmonary edema, drowning patients will have a particular issue with ventilation. If the patient is unable to protect their airway or unable to maintain a PaO2 of above 60 or an SpO2 of above 90% despite oxygen supplementation, including non-invasive positive pressure ventilation if the patient is appropriately mentating to participate, they should be intubated. Drowning patients are at high risk for developing ARDS and current ventilator setting recommendations 
for all drowning patients are the same as for those with ARDS. So that's low tidal volume and high PEEP. Based on your institution's resources, ECMO may be an option for patients with severe pulmonary edema or ARDS. As with the seemingly well patients who decompensated, these critical patients should be admitted to the MICU for frequent cardiopulmonary and neuro checks. Perfect. And how about some other treatments like antibiotics and what about steroids? So antibiotics and glucocorticoids are not empirically recommended. If the patient develops aspiration or ventilator-associated pneumonia during their hospital stay, include antibiotic coverage for more unusual organisms such as Pseudomonas or Aeromonas. However, starting empiric antibiotics in the ED is rarely necessary. As for glucocorticoids, in these patients, as cerebral edema is usually due to ischemic injury from prolonged submersion and hypoxia, interventions to decrease cerebral edema have not been shown to be efficacious. All of that makes sense, but many of these patients will be hypothermic. What do we need to think about when it comes to resuscitating these patients and also rewarming? A core body temperature below 28 degrees Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit is considered severe hypothermia. The evidence behind hypothermia being protective for neurological recovery in drowning patients is mostly case report based. There have been reports of full recovery in patients who were submerged for over an hour. This may be in part due to the diving reflex and activation of the parasympathetic system. That's bradycardia, apnea, and peripheral constriction. Once a patient is in the ED, the old adage applies. A patient shouldn't be declared dead until they are warm and dead. While paying special attention to securing the patient's airway and adequately ventilating, remember that their heart arrhythmias, usually severe bradycardia, are unlikely to respond to medication or electricity. What they need is aggressive rewarming. Let's say we've warmed the patients, we've done our resuscitation. What are the data on outcomes for these patients? Drowning-associated mortality ranges from about 31 to 74%, depending on what studies you look at. Asystole, especially, is associated with poor prognosis. Resuscitation that is ongoing for longer than 30 minutes is associated with poor outcomes in drowning patients, meaning that patients who are still undergoing CPR in the ED are unlikely to survive neurologically intact. Generally, by the 24-hour mark after the drowning event, a patient will have made either a full or near-full cardiopulmonary and neurologic recovery. A lot of that makes sense. A cystly, obviously very poor prognosis. I do think prevention is really important when it comes to drowning. What should we be telling patients and parents? For patients being discharged from the ED, this is a teachable moment. As most drownings are accidental and often involve children, especially young children, educating the patient or the parents about safe water practices can be life-saving. This includes swimming under supervision, implementing pool barriers for children, using life vests, and avoiding substance use. So, so important. Prevention goes such a long way for this. Sophia, what are your key points for the listeners? In summary, saltwater and freshwater drowning should be treated the same. In critical patients, you should focus on the airway, breathing, and circulation. ARDS ventilator settings are appropriate for patients requiring intubation. All patients should be evaluated for trauma, but traumatic injuries and the need for a trauma activation are rare. Antibiotics and glucocorticoids are not routinely recommended in the ED. 
And for the stable, asymptomatic, or mildly symptomatic patient, observe for four to six hours before discharge. If they decompensate, consult the MICU and admit. Sophia, thanks for joining us on the podcast and the amazing content. We'll definitely be having you back. Thank you, Brett. Pleasure being here. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. Mm-hmm.